Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. Today, we talked with Dave Hoover about coding boot camps and how immersive learning environments are helping to fill the talent shortage among developers. Dave also shared his opinions with us about whether you should learn how to code. How are you doing, Dave? I'm great. Excellent. Let's just dive right into this. Mark Andreessen famously wrote that software is eating the world, but he went on to say that every company I work with is absolutely starved for talent. What do you think is behind this gap in supply and demand? Well, the fact that software is eating to the world is true. I mean, every industry is will be disrupted or has been disrupted or is being reinvented through open source software, through the fact that like the barrier to entry is just continually going down for um, software companies to get started. And so it kind of just follows. Like Software can be written faster than software developers can be developed. And so partially because of the um what I saw like throughout my career like back in like the 2003 time frame when it seemed like everybody in the US was under the impression that programming was just not going to really be a thing in the United States anymore we were in the kind of the dot com bubble burst period but also the, everything was everyone everyone thought it was going offshore and so like tons of people weren't going into it everyone was getting MBAs and I'm getting out of technology, like in terms of actually being the, a technology maker. And so I feel like that set us backwards, that sort of mentality and, and that sort of assumption and created part of the problem that we have right now, which is just like a lack of senior talent in the United States. So that's part of the starvation because that was just like almost a whole generation of, of software developers that would have existed, a whole like kind of brain drain that happened back then. But they didn't because everyone wanted to just like play it safe and go for management or something. But also, even if, if even if that hadn't happened, and I'm probably over-attributing that phenomenon just because it made it, played a kind of a big role in my career, but just that there's just so much demand for software to be written. And like I said before, like our methods of creating software developers up until a few years ago was pretty stuck in an old way of doing it. And obviously, like coding boot camps hit the scene and, and that's, that's helped, but it's still just the beginning and we've really only scratched the surface. So how, how do dev boot camps right now help solve this talent shortage? Well, there's, they're starting to help. You know, I think we, as a little niche industry, graduated about 6,000 students last year, which is, I believe, around 20% of how many computer science graduates or come out every year, and I don't really want to compare those. They're not like apples to apples by any means. But both of them are employable, you know, and, and able to hit the ground in, in a company, in a startup, in a bigger company, whatever, and like make a difference and be productive. So they're starting to help, but a bunch of boot camps have been doing work with the White House over the last six months, you know, and they're they're thinking much bigger. They see projections of like half a million software jobs left unfilled over the next five years. And that's where like the boot camps have so far to go in order to actually make a dent in that kind of problem. And, and, and all sorts of educational institutions and training programs are going to be needed to actually deal with that problem. But that's one of the reasons the White House has been so inclusive of us is because they see us as pioneers um, and that 
there's no reason that these boot camps can't exist in you know every city. That seems like a large number of developers that the White House is projecting. Where do those numbers come from? I should say it's more general, like IT focus. Like some percentage of that is like people who are managing like hardware, like in terms of like IT, like workstations. There's some percentage of that is system administrators, some of that is network administrators, and some percentage of that is software developers. So it's, I don't think it's a full like half million just straight up coders, but it's still like a lot, like probably a hundred thousand or more. And the previous things I'd heard were like a million new job openings. And I think they're saying that like maybe we'll fill half of those. Honestly, I'm not good with like statistics and sources and stuff like that. I'm not very uh, meticulous about that sort of thing. It doesn't really like them saying that to me is like, oh, wow, that's a huge shortfall. And I can understand why they're prioritizing it. And if you want me to come visit the White House, I'll be happy to come and, <laughs> and help lend, and help like lend some insight from what we've learned over the last three years doing what we've been doing. So. Right. And um, I mean, the, the actual numbers don't really matter as much to me. It's, it's, but what I'm seeing is that sometimes in our little corners of like the Ruby world or the startup world, it can feel like the boot camps are enough, like already, like maybe they're even saturating things sometimes. But everyone has to realize that there's a much larger job market for software developers. And those companies are just now starting to like open their eyes to this stream of talent that comes out of these schools. Um, right, right. And that's, that's when things get interesting. And, and I have to imagine, too, that it's hard to predict where the industry is headed since the industry, I mean, if you follow the logic of Andreessen's software eating the world, you really can't predict where and when software is going to start impacting all sorts of other industries where it previously didn't. Yeah, absolutely. I would never have guessed like a few years ago that like Uber would have disrupted like the taxi industry the way it has. And like completely become like, <laughs> like a way that we get around our cities. And the interesting thing is it's not like they're replacing, or at least that as far as I'm aware of, like there's not, it's not like they're replacing some old software. They're just like writing software to do something new that's where software hadn't even been used before. So it's interesting. So you have all these jobs that aren't being filled. Where's the challenge in meeting and training all these developers to fill those jobs and meet that demand? The challenge at this point is not on the bootcamp side. There's a number of bootcamps that are really doing a great job of getting people ready and have a firm grasp now on like how to run an, an immersive learning environment. Uh, the challenge is on the employer side and helping the employers and encouraging the employers and coming alongside the employers in being able to onboard junior talent effectively. This is a new kind of junior talent. They're going to come in with more practical skills, less theoretical skills, so they're able to do more on day one than maybe some other kind of like a maybe a computer science graduate who has a more theoretical understanding of some things, but they're going to have more blind spots, you know. So I mean, I've I've been a long time proponent of apprenticeships and employers and and ran an, an apprenticeship program for five years before I got involved with Dev Bootcamp at a couple of companies, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take employers having more of a investment style, like just just investing more in their employees and especially their junior ones to help get them ready because there's a lot of employers that just can't hire a lot of these grads and it, they're completely missing out there's other employers great employers who are, have very high standards who've hired 9 10 11 of like dev bootcamp graduates other schools graduates and they're totally it's just it's a great advantage for them for, in terms of attracting great talent and then they're growing these people up into you know team leads and, and such so at that, the employers that are going to be able to, like, I think, excel over the next few years are the ones that are going to be able to take advantage of this new 
stream of talent that's just going to keep becoming more and more available. Okay, great. And I'd like to come back around to this in a bit, but let's start back up before somebody even goes into your program. So now if if I'm somebody who's a uh, non-technical aspiring founder and I have an idea for a startup, do you think I should learn to code? Should I be coming to one of these boot camps? It's a good question. It's it's a tough place to be. And but the very first coding school, I don't really want to call it a boot camp because I don't think they would call themselves that. But the first school that I got involved with back in 2011 was called Code Academy. And now it's called Starter League. It's here in Chicago. And that's why they exist is they exist to help entrepreneurial people like learn how to code and bring their ideas to life, like through learning just enough to like build an MVP. I think it's a cool thing. I, I mentored those students and it's awesome to watch them do that. But it, it's also frustrating because you're not like taking it from a, like a true, like trying to become an engineer perspective. You're kind of using the code as a means to an end as opposed to just learning how to code really well and like learning how to be a good software developer and really just focusing on that. Cause it's hard to like have your idea and then learn what you need to make the idea a reality. Like that's actually a pretty cool position, except for the fact that you're just going to learn just enough to get by. And then at some point later, you're going to like have a problem and you're not going to know how to solve it. You're going to have to rely on other people to figure it out. So in my opinion, like that's a motivating place to be. And and I don't, I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from learning to code by any means. But what I've seen is that the best approach for people who want to someday, like sometimes you might have the idea that has to exist Sometimes you just want to be like a founder, like of something. And if you have that idea, like pursue it, go after it, use it as a way of motivating yourself to learn. But understand that like you really have to almost push all the, your other ideas away for a while if you want to actually learn how to do this. Because you can learn the code and you can kind of do some tutorials and stuff. But we talk about coding versus software development. There's like the act of like solving some programming problems on codeacademy.com. That's some coding, but actually like building an like a little system that will actually do something meaningful for people is software development. And it usually takes a team of two or three people and a a wide variety of skills um, that takes a lot of dedication to attain. So Um, what's the, what's the difference in difficulty and investment between, you know, just learning how to code just to get something working and learning how to code as building a system as you speak? I would say it's about four times the amount of effort. Just in terms of raw number of hours, um, it takes about four times as long. Or I shouldn't say as long, but like it's four, four times as many hours because you can compress those hours quite a bit. Like that's why our students come to Dev Bootcamp is to compress a lot of hours into a small amount of calendar time. So yeah, it, it takes a lot. It takes a ton of time and, and effort, but it changes your brain. That, that's one of the things I like about be- becoming a programmer. Like that was me when I was 26. I decided to become a, to learn how to program and it literally I could feel it changing my like brain chemistry and the way I thought about things and the way I solve problems. So that's why like what I've seen is it's best to have somebody go learn the craft, go learn the skill of doing this. And then along the way, your ideas are going to come back to you or new ideas are going to come up. And now two, three years down the line, you're going to be in a position to just like those ideas, the code will just flow out of your fingers and you, things will just spring to life. That's what I try to, the direction I try to steer people. So how long then would it take me to reach that level of proficiency we talked about? You, you said that there's a 4x time difference between one and the other. Uh, what is the time scale for these? Yeah, I, for me, like our program is 19 weeks. It's 18 weeks of technical content. 
with a week of like career coaching and stuff. So that's actually, I don't know how many hours that is off the top of my head. Like the first nine weeks is a remote part time, about 20 hours a week. So whatever that is, 20 times nine, 180 hours or so. And then you get into the immersive side where you're spending upwards of 60, 70, 80 hours a week for nine, at least nine weeks on site with us, with our teachers. And, and, you know, you're basically like, it's like getting dropped into a foreign country and you're learning a new language. So whatever that is, like whatever, like 60 times nine there, 540 plus 180, you know, whatever that math is, uh, what is that? 720? Yep. It's a lot of hours. And and like for me, I, I didn't have a dev boot camp. Like I didn't have any sort of coding boot camp. So I stretched that over years. I had to get a job and like muddle through and I had <laughs> my family to, to take care of, my wife and my kids. And so I I stretched out. But and that just gets you up to the point where you can switch from paying to learn to getting paid to learn. And you still have a heck of a lot to learn as I mean, even if you even experienced software developers still have lots to learn. Right. Absolutely. I um, mean, it's so, it does take quite a while. I I come from the same background that you did. I'm self-taught. Okay. You know, I I did it primarily to try and start a company. Um, cool. <laughs> it was a lot of work. I mean, uh, especially because we didn't have, you know, the codeacademy.coms, team treehouse, anything like that and dev boot yeah. camps were not a thing back then. So, you know, we're talking like solid 14-15 hour days, 7 days a week for uh, close to a year or something for me to work that stuff out, which is just, that's a lot of effort for somebody to have to put in trying to get things wrong often enough that you finally figure out how to get things right. Uh, that's well said. Um, yeah, it is a ton of work. I mean, but for so many of us, the only way that works is because you enjoy it because you're, you, because you enjoy solving problems and you love these little feedback loops about you're getting it wrong, but at least you don't have to wait very long to know that you got it wrong. You're, you're finding out within like milliseconds of, of you running the code and then you fix it and you find out the next thing is wrong. And that little, those little feedback loops are very addictive. They were for me and uh, that right. definitely helped me, helped me get through those like long nights of figuring stuff out. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it still took me a while to really appreciate the intrinsic uh, motivation behind that. You know, I had all this sort of like extrinsic drive of, just wanting to be able to build a software company, you know, so on and so forth. But mm. really, I think it took me like close to about a year or so to really uh, start to value all this intrinsic behavior that I was getting from it. You know, now I, I kind of come to the point where I said, you know, look, if I weren't doing entrepreneurship in general, I think it would actually, uh, I would be fine just being a software developer because it's it's so satisfying uh, solving puzzles constantly. Yep. So. Yeah, and I, I always enjoyed watching Starter League students back when I was mentoring them. You know, so many of them were coming in with, you know, the idea. The idea was, their idea was the thing. That's the reason they were there. It's the reason they got up in the morning and they were going to, like, bring this idea to life. And for some of them, that's the way it kept going. And, like, they, maybe they prototyped that idea and iterated and pivoted or whatever, and they go on and do cool things. But some of them along the way, the idea becomes absolutely, like, meaningless to them because they've found what they like. They've like really like a few, you know, for some of them, they like fall in love with the coding, with the programming kind of life cycle. And that was fun to watch because I could relate to it basically from my experience. And suppose, uh, suppose I'm, I'm non-technical and I don't actually want to be a programmer, but I am working closely with them. Uh, should I learn to code or is there something else I should be doing? That's a good one. I would think so. Like because you just talked about the team tree houses of the world and the code academy to, 
com of the world that we have now, like it's so accessible. It's just literally like you could learn it, just load it up in your browser and follow a tutorial. Um, it's very simple. I would give it a shot. Like to the extent that it helps you appreciate like what coders are actually doing, to the, to the extent that it dem- demystifies to some, you know, like I said, to some extent, what the heck they're even talking about when they're talking about maybe some some details about oh, well, oh, well, if you want to do that, then we're gonna have to do it this way. Blah blah blah. It's just, it's not going to hurt. You know, we have a, we have a t-shirt that a lot of people at that bootcamp wear that has the, on the front of it, it says coding is the new literacy. I have mixed feelings about that statement, actually. I think it's, and it's a pretty good marketing slogan, uh, <laughs> just in terms of getting people to want to learn to code. But, you know, I don't think everybody needs to become a software engineer, but there's no doubt that this stuff is just more and more important in our world. And if you go and spend time in a place like Silicon Valley, you realize that there's so much of it is just in everybody's just everyday life, like in their work. I'm just, I'm surprised living in a place like Chicago that has a lot of people that are very kind of, I don't know, behind the times when it comes to tech, along with lots of people that are just like living in it and being very uh, innovative and stuff. But you go to a place like, I don't know, the Bay Area and I, I notice in little things like how pervasive even code is among non-technical people, just understanding certain aspects of the web and technology. Um, so I think it's important that everybody learns as much as they can about it. I remember I was a psychology major and my uncle, this is like 1992, and my uncle was like, uh, he ran a uh, research and development department for Accenture. I think back then they were Anderson. But um, anyway, he, he gave me some great advice. He was like, I don't care if you're going to be a psychology major, a biology major, whatever, you need to learn about the web. Go learn it and learn how to program. Because it'll it'll help you, and I didn't really I didn't really I was intimidated by it. I didn't really want to deal with it at the time, but like he was totally right, and I, I would give other people the same advice: just learn how this stuff works because it it's a big part of everybody's lives. You said that uh, you have this T-shirt that says "Software is the new literacy," and you know I think you're right that maybe in a broad context, like does software literacy really replace literacy as a whole? But uh, I think there's something to be said for the idea that. You know, if I'm going to visit Mexico, for example, I probably want to be at least a little bit proficient in Spanish to be able to know my way around, you know, be able to have some more meaningful conversation with somebody. So given that, wouldn't you recommend that if somebody is engaging in, you know, constant conversation with somebody and yet can't speak their language, that they at least learn the basics of it? Absolutely. The most successful startup founder I, I know, or at least the one I've worked most closely with, was a guy named Gary Levitt, who was the founder of Mad Mimi, which is an email marketing platform that got acquired last summer by GoDaddy. Anyway, we started that company. I was like a consultant for him, basically, a kind of a hired gun, and he was the non-technical founder. And it was just the two of us, basically, for the first four months or so. And I was coding and he was working on all sorts of stuff. But mostly he was just chatting with me. He was in Brooklyn and I was in Chicago. And over the course of that first year, he learned HTML, he learned CSS, he learned how to use Photoshop effectively. And he took over all sorts of things. He was more visually gifted than I was. So he was able to really get in the trenches with me. He never needed to learn. He never became like a great Ruby developer. But he started, he got so involved, he was able to kind of guess at where the bugs were, you know, when we had a problem. He was able to like kind of reason about the system 
somewhat like a software developer uh, because he got so involved and it totally made the project way more successful. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you have the bandwidth to do something like that, and uh, he did at the time, um, I think it's a wise thing. So as a founder, he, I, I would imagine he had a whole bunch of things that he should have been doing. What do you think <laughs> drove him to be learning Ruby and um, HTML and all these different right. things? Yeah, I mean, so what drove him was, so he was someone who, I wouldn't call him a perfectionist, but he had very high standards and he had very, he's very opinionated about how the product, the user experience should feel. And so he wanted, instead of, he, he wanted to learn enough so that he could affect it, like take his ideas and actually affect the way that the, the program or the, the software worked and looked. Like, I shouldn't say worked because like, you know, we had a JavaScript guru on the project that, really did a lot of work on that in terms of the way it actually worked on the user interface. But he wanted to get as close as he could so that he could like more easily bring his own ideas into the system. And I think it was the really great use of his time just because of the way he ended up growing the company. He grew it all very organically and, and like through creating happy customers and then they would go and tweet and blog about it. So he wasn't out there like creating all these partnerships and stuff. You know, he wanted to get the product like super solid and super like just he he would say like he wanted it to be lovely that's how he would say it except he says it in this (laughs) awesome south african accent that he has Um, (laughs) yeah so he he was he was very about the aesthetics and so he was in he was motivated to learn that stuff himself and we didn't have a big budget maybe if he was better at raising money or was willing to give up more equity he could have gone and (laughs) you know like hired out some great visual designers but he wanted to do it himself because he was on a small budget, which ultimately the guy ended up owning a ton of the company, and now he'll never have to work again. <laughs> right. So that sounded like that worked out pretty. That worked out pretty well for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've seen a lot of people struggle to learn programming and watch too many give up too soon. Typically, you'll see you know some sort of hump that people hit and can't get over. Have you seen this happen? And how difficult is this to overcome? I haven't seen this very often, honestly. I, I'm trying to think. Like, I, I'm, I'm so, I've seen hundreds now of people that power through this, this hump that you're talking about. And so I'm like, it's kind of, I'm like unbelievably like biased, I guess, by my <laughs> own experiences. And well, I don't even just mean biased because of Dev Bootcamp, but just because I've seen so many people not fail. <laughs> right. We, we have seen students who don't end up making it through Dev Bootcamp. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is they end up leaving because this isn't the right environment for them. Pretty rare. Um, we do a lot of work up front before they get here to, to make sure that they're coming into the right environment. But the other is like we say, like, you're not keeping up. We're going to have to ask you to leave. And that's a really hard thing for us to have to say. But even then, we're not saying you can't become a software developer. We're just saying that like this program and this immersive learning environment isn't working for you. And we'll still work with those students like outside of our like day-to-day program and mentor them, help them keep making progress because they certainly can, right? I don't know if that boot camp would have even worked for me, but I was still able to become a software developer on my own time and on my own terms. So I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't see this very often. I've certainly mentored a lot of people outside of Dev Bootcamp who were kind of on the same journey that I was. Like, so, you know, sometime in there, you know, a lot of people are doing this in like their mid mid to late twenties and making that change. And what I see is just they're coming into an encouraging software developer community, and they're get they're reaching out for mentoring, and they're getting it, and that keeps them moving forward. And it's just a matter of like staying engaged, not giving up. I mean, I think the giving up is 
the problem. And maybe it's just people are giving up, not because, well, maybe they're giving up just because they don't have that intrinsic enjoyment of the activity, which is totally fine. Right. Right. They just, they're not wired for this. So, so I've actually, I've, I've seen people who have given up, but then I've talked to, you know, I have friends who are graduates of dev bootcamp and other related bootcamp like programs. You know, I, I typically, I'll hear caution from them saying that, you know, around, I don't, I don't remember the precise week number, but there's some point at which they feel like nothing has clicked <laughs> up till then. And in okay. reality, you know, it, it was clicking, but they needed something else. Um, and it was just sort of like the, the way they've always described it to me is just, you know, you want to stick it out and eventually everything will come together. And the people that I've watched give up have typically not overcome that step. You know, they hit that step and then they didn't power through. So, I see. you know, as, as an outsider, at least looking in, it appears as though, you know, just the length of the program and the way that you're supporting people, you're allowing them to get over that hump. But it does appear to be pretty consistent hearing from everybody that there's a, a point at which <laughs> there's like an oh no moment. Like, what did I get myself into? And absolutely. then that goes away. Yeah, no, that absolutely is true. I mean, there's, I wouldn't say there's even one of those, um, <laughs> you know, like it's a series of like, how the heck did I get here? Like, should I even be here? I'm an imposter. And I think that's, I mean, people who don't look like a stereotypical software developer are even more susceptible to those feelings. You know, I mean, just people who are in, in the minority right. in the room. So I definitely want to acknowledge, like, and just call that out. That's, that's like a huge dynamic for why people decide not to do this or just choose not to go into this in the first place. But yeah, like we try our best to provide support to help people through those um, situations. We, one of our trainings that we put people through is, is about your inner critic and how to deal with it and, and, and vocalizing it and getting to know it and realizing it's not going to go away, but you can have power over it. So we do it. We do a, a, every week we do at least one like empathy training or soft skills training like that, that helps people get through. And we also have a counselor available to people to check in with when they need to, because <laughs> it's an intense environment and we're, and people are pushing themselves really hard and having a counselor available helps with anxiety and self-doubt and stuff like that. What's the mark of a great developer? Good one. You know, for me, we were just talking about, you know, the, the ability to push through problems. So I think that's one of them, like just a, a tenaciousness and just the ability to focus is like very important. I think the ability to communicate your ideas technically is very, very important because software development is not a solo endeavor. 90% of the time or more, it's, it's a team sport. Uh, you have to be able to work well with others and communicate your ideas. And I'd say, like, I, actually, yeah, so ability to communicate and focus and just, I mean, ultimately be to, the ability to be able to put a lot of stuff up in your head at the same time, honestly, like abstract reasoning, for me, I, I know like my ability to imagine my code when I'm not even sitting in front of it has been a great help so I can think about problems when I'm not actually coding on them. So yeah, just having a really strong imagination, the ability to put up, hold like somewhat complex ideas in your head uh, is helpful. But sometimes that can get you into trouble uh, if, you, if you're too good at that because you can end up writing code that <laughs> is just way too complex for, for most people. So. So I, I obviously absolutely agree with the communication aspect since that's, we're sort of on the other side of the fence here on communication. Mm -hmm. So how then would you say that new developers can effectively communicate 
these technical concepts to their non-technical team members? One of the things we have our students do is we have them pair program a lot. And what that does is that you just get a lot of practice. Um, and practice is, I mean, how, how we get good at anything, but it gives, it gives you a lot of practice articulating your, your thoughts because you have to, and you, you know, your thoughts, your frustrations, your, your ideas for like where you want to go next. And certainly at the beginning of Dev Bootcamp, it's two relatively non-technical people talking to each other. And that's one of the cool things about coming into software development a little bit later is you are able to retain some empathy for non-technical people. I wasn't a software developer, you know, like I said, until I was a little bit older in like my later 20s. And um, so that's helpful. But yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it's practice. It's, uh, I know when I first came into the field, I picked up on some of the like kind of annoyance and like almost stigma around having to deal with non-technical people that some developers have. Like, oh, don't make me talk to people who don't understand <laughs> right. what I'm talking about, right? So I think it's just important to just, for us as an industry to move past that. And I don't know, at least in my little corner, but I feel like we have or we are. And realizing it, like, if we want to be competitive as a company, like as a startup company out there in the world, our ability to communicate is like just so fundamental. And so that's just, just, it just needs to be modeled by the team leads, by the more senior developers and, and junior developers will just follow suit. And to your point on empathy, we place a huge importance on it. Like when we're mentoring new developers and we see, we, we do code reviews, a lot of the times we find ourselves asking, okay, so if somebody's looking at this code, would they understand it? Or how would somebody else use this code or how would you use this code a week from now and so we find that they have to constantly keep asking that question especially new developers when they're writing code makes sense yeah i mean thinking about like going back to code that you've written in the past and thinking about the person who's going to be maintaining a code in the future is and very enlightening no doubt what do you think about this idea of the 10x engineer do you think there is such a thing as a 10x engineer i certainly think there's people that are incredibly incredibly good at programming, you know, like absolutely there's people that are 10 times better than other people. Like there's, you know, like if you think of someone who's just horrible at it, I mean, think about basketball, think about Michael Jordan versus your average high school basketball player. Michael Jordan had natural ability. Michael Jordan practiced his ass off so that he could get get even better. He's a very competitive person. So there's certainly people that do that with programming and, and they love it and they practice it and they hone their craft and they get very, very good at it. But I think it's more interesting to think about people who are multipliers, like not just of like, oh, I'm twice as good as you, but when they're on your team, your team goes twice as fast. Because there's also things called divisors, right? Like people who, when they're on your team, you go like three times as slow. They're like dividing your productivity, right? Right. Um, (laughs) Now, so when I think of like a 10x developer, that person is adding productivity to your team. Right. Like they're more than another person would. But we talk about this with our students a lot. Like that's great. And we want everybody to get better. And that's kind of this like kind of linear progression. And, and there's people who are much better than others. And let's all just get better because we all need to get better. But like the real interesting thing happens is when you're a multiplier for your team. Like when you're the one who's like somehow like resolving a conflict before it starts or you're like doing a great code review and preventing a problem, like a, a miscommunication, you know, between two other developers that you're noticing. To me, that's what I want our students to aspire to is to be a multiplier of their team, not just to be like me, the best developer in the room or something. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. I mean, from from my perspective, 
it's kind of weird to be talking about 10x engineers since we don't talk about like 10x doctors or anything like that. I think I actually saw that in a hacker news thread recently. But realistically, we do end up talking about you know top cardiologists in their field, and so, absolutely, yeah. I don't, I don't think it's far fetched to think about somebody as being significantly better than somebody else. It's just, it's just, I mean, just humans. Like we're there's outliers, and they'll always be sought after, and they'll always, you know. They'll always have a job, you know, and they'll, and they'll probably be doing interesting work. The problem is when those people are great individually, but like a problem on a team, it's like, what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like you're, you're writing great code, but you're leaving like destruction in your wake. Like I, I have no interest in working with somebody like that. But I've worked with amazing developers before who are also great teammates and like that's who you want, you know? Right. And I think software does not get written in isolation. So you need exactly. to remember that. Yeah. So I just want to keep definitely like spreading that, that aspect of this. Absolutely. So circling back, we talked a little bit about, um, what happens when a graduate leaves your program and goes out into the workforce. What is the best working environment for a brand new dev bootcamp graduate? That's going to depend on the graduate. There's all sorts of different kinds of people that go through our program and they all learn pretty much the same stuff while they're here. Some of them will specialize in different things as they go through, and they all have to pass the same assessments to get to graduation, so there's certainly a bar that they have to pass. But that said, there's some that come out and are able to do more than others. And I'd say at one end of the spectrum, we have people who need an apprenticeship, a pretty intense apprenticeship to get them up to that next level. There's people who choose, like they could do almost anything as they leave but they choose an apprenticeship because they're, they're willing to sacrifice some pay initially in order to like really continue to improve quickly. And then there's people that are able to go out and get an entry level job. There's people that go out to get a pretty prestigious spot on like as a junior member of a, of a team. So in all those cases though, the ideal is that there's strong mentoring, um, whether it's a formal apprenticeship or just like a, a strong mentoring program, because that's, I mean, like after just a few months or, you know, maybe a year of self-study or something, and then you do dev boot camp, and you're a very strong graduate. Even then, like, there's so much to learn. Sure. And certainly, there's there's people who who might leave dev boot camp and go start their own company or join a very very small company as like a co-founder or one of the very first employees. Like, and and that that can work out for them. But it's also like not something I would want most of our students to do. I want most of our students to go, just like medical students leave med school and go to a residency where you have a lot of supervision, I'd want the same thing for our students. Like, go and don't just start operating <laughs> right. so, uh, on your own on like, <laughs> for a business. Like, actually go have someone looking over your shoulder while you're doing it. So as, a, as an employer then, what can I do to support one of these new graduates? Uh, it's just some, a couple of simple things. Like, first, don't hire too many at once. And most companies don't make that mistake. Some, some do, and uh, it hurts them. Because it hurts everybody. But yeah, just make sure you have enough mentoring for each one that you bring on. Sign a mentor to each one for their first three months or, or however long makes sense for you. Have them just check in with them. They don't have to babysit them every day, you know, all day, every day. But have them just simply check in with them once a week to see how things are going. And, and maybe start thinking about putting something more formal together in terms of like giving them some assigned like reading or technologies they need to focus on and build pet projects in in order to to ramp up on the company stack. 
Okay. Yeah. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, I mean, we're, we're trying to do that actively ourselves, you know, with developers that we're working with, but it's certainly, I mean, if you're not the expert, like you are on bringing people up to speed, there's certainly challenges associated with that. So do you have any resources that maybe we could link to in the show notes? I, I know you yeah. co-wrote a book called a- Apprenticeship Patterns, but you know, if there's, if there's anything else that we might be able to link to, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. You could certainly link to the book and there's a, like a HTML version of it that's for free out there that you could link to. But also I wrote a little like five page little brain dump about how to build an apprenticeship program that I could send you. Oh, that'd be great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fantastic. Can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? Sure. Yeah. I'm just Dave Hoover on Twitter, just smushed together. And yeah, that's probably the best place. Just Dave Hoover on Twitter. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.